0: While those are flying around, I'm going to say one quick thing. Uh, keep, keep passing them out. Keep getting them to the people that need them. But I'm going to say one quick thing about what we're about to do. We're about to open up the Bible, and what we're about to do, it's relatively simple, but it's supernatural. It's supernatural that the Holy Spirit of God would feed uh, God's people, but it's really simple what we're about to do. We're about to open the Bible and we're about, to, we're about to talk about what it means. And then we're going to ask the question, what's this supposed to do in my life? And so at the end of the day, uh, you know, maybe you grew up in a culture to where, uh, you know, somebody, you know, you go to church and somebody asks you, what did the, the preacher teach on today? And my aim today is that you would be able to say, well, he talked about Mark chapter 10. Okay, he explained what Mark chapter 10 was about, and then we talked about how the words of Jesus can bring to bear on our life. And so at the end of the day, what we're going after is that God's word would be hung, that this time would cling closely to the scriptures, and at the end of the day, that God's word would be preached and not the opinions of men. And this is just our aim. This is all of our confidence is that the word of God is meant to build up the church. And so real simply, as we get started, I just want to say that now. If you haven't been with us on Sunday mornings for the past almost six months, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, and so we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and that puts us in Mark chapter 10. And so we're going to cover today, we're going to cover Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. So if you'll take your Bible out, and you'll go ahead and turn there, anybody not have a study guide, that's going to help you out as we go through together. Okay. We're about to read this together, and we say this a lot, I say this a lot, but I really mean this, that that you need to listen closely uh, as we read over these few verses that we're covering today, because the most important words that you're going to hear all morning long are the words of Jesus, the words of God. And so we're about to read them together, and I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 10, and let's read verses 13 through verse 16. Can everybody hear me? Okay. Mark chapter 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to Jesus that He might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, He was indignant and said, Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of God. So let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, and we desire to hear from you. God, we just confess to you that your word is powerful. We've experienced it many times in our life that Your Word is is powerful, Lord. It's It's living and active. It's a fire and a hammer. And God, we just pray that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, that You would drive Your Word into our hearts, into our souls, into our minds. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would sanctify us with Your Word. Sanctify us in Your truth, Lord. God, I pray for everyone here that You would... Give them undistracted time to linger over Your words and to think about Your words, Lord. And God, we ask that You would help Your words to be clearly taught and to be clearly received, Lord. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Alright. If you have been with us the past few weeks, we've been in Mark chapters 9 and 10. And this is a section of Mark. If, if you got kids here and they start getting a little fussy today, don't worry about it in the least bit, because I'll just crank it up, and we're going to roll with it. Uh, So I mean that. Don't worry about it. Mark chapters 9 and 10, some people have called this the great discipleship discourse, okay? In Mark chapters 9 and 10, and the reason why they call it this is because there is a heavy emphasis in Mark 9 and 10 on Jesus training his 12 apostles, And you see this in Mark chapters 9 and 10. He's already taught them. He taught them a lesson about faith and a lesson about humility. And then he teaches them a lesson about sin and a lesson about marriage. And today we get a lesson about children and it keeps going all the way to the end of Mark chapter 10. And so do you see what's happening here? Over and over again in these two chapters, Jesus is confronting the worldview of his disciples. He's changing the way that they think about a variety of issues, just one after the other after the other. The great discipleship discourse is what this is referred to as. So I want you to remember this. Mark, Jesus taught these things, and this really happened. This is real history to the 12 apostles. But Mark recorded this for our benefit. These things were written down that we would read about them and that we would be instructed in the, in the ways of Jesus, and the mind of Christ, and that we would be conformed to the character of Jesus. So Mark intends that these chapters are for us. These chapters are meant for our edification and that we would learn. So I say that to say this. As we walk through Mark 9 and 10, as we walk through these past few weeks and over these next few weeks as we finish, here's my encouragement. Do not waste this time. This is meant to do something in your life. And so ideally, here's what we're going after. That the twelve are being trained by Jesus. And that as we're reading the words of God and hearing teaching on these chapters, that we are being trained with the twelve at the same time as we're coming through this. this is for, we meet together for edification. And we're supposed to look more like Jesus after we gather on Sunday mornings than when, we, than when we came together. So don't waste this time. Don't waste this time. This is supposed to be doing something in your life. So let me ask you this. Jesus has already taught His disciples about faith, about humility, about sin, about marriage. What's happening in your heart? Are you wasting this time? Are you you asking the Holy Spirit of God to drive these things in? Ideally, our prayer together should be that as the twelve are being trained, we're being trained. As their worldviews are being flipped upside down, so are ours. That we would be confronted consistently with the words of Jesus. And I want to add one more layer of urgency of this section, Mark 9 and 10. Think about this. Mark 9 and 10, Jesus is training His 12, and then what happens? What happens after that? Mark 11 happens after that. After Mark 10, Mark 11 happens. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus trains His 12. This is the plan of God, the perfect wisdom of God, the perfect plan of God. Jesus trains His 12, and then Mark, Mark chapter 11 happens, and that means that Jesus trains His 12, and He lives one more week on this planet. And then He's crucified, and then He's resurrected, and He's ascended forever. So let that hit you that in the final months of Jesus' life, He takes these topics that we're covering, and He pours them into 12 men. In the final days, in the final weeks of His life on the earth, this is what He desired to impart to His disciples. And that ought to hit you. So when I think about that, I'm thinking, Lord Jesus, this is what you poured in with your final weeks. I want to learn these lessons well. And I hope that you say the same thing, that you want to learn these lessons well. This is what Jesus desired to impart to them. So our passage today picks up on what Ryan started last week. This is a sequel. Last week, Jesus taught on marriage, and that was the family part one. And then this week we roll straight into Jesus' teaching on children. That's the family part two, the sequel. So we're about to see Jesus' view, his teaching, his doctrine on children. Okay, We're about to see that. And I hope it comes to no surprise of any of you in this room that Jesus loves kids. He loves children. We're about to see this. Okay. So this passage is going to be about children. But this passage today is also going to be about entering the kingdom of God. Entering the kingdom of God. And that's a life and death issue. That's an eternal issue. And so Jesus is going to teach us about how, the only way, about how we enter the kingdom of God. And the reason that's important for us, I know you've seen this many times. There is no lack of opinion on what on, on how we enter the kingdom of God. And here's what I mean by that. Some say... We enter God's kingdom through being born to Christian parents and having a Christian family and being around the church for 15, 20 years. And and if we do that, if we're around the church, we don't never remember any time we weren't in the church, then we're in the kingdom. That's how we get in the kingdom. Other people say, well, you've got to be baptized to be in the kingdom. That's how you get in the kingdom. You you be baptized in the name of Jesus. Other people say, you got to speak in tongues to be in the kingdom or or maybe you've heard this, I've heard this many times in my life, that the way into the kingdom, here's the way into the kingdom, you just say this prayer, you just repeat these words, and if you do this, you're in the kingdom. You see all the opinions that fly around in our culture about this is how to get in the kingdom of God. But Jesus is about to break it down Barney style. I mean, very, very clear. He's going to give us a clear answer. This is how we get into the kingdom of God. And He desires for you to know this. This is not supposed to be a fuzzy answer for you. Okay? You need to know how we get into the kingdom of God, how we enter. So we're going to walk through this passage, verse by verse, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what it means, and then we're going to turn around, and that's not enough. I want to say that. It is not enough to know just what the Bible means. Okay? The, the Scriptures are supposed to do something in us. It's, it's, it's written for a reason. So we're going to talk about what it means, and then we're going to talk about application of what it's supposed to do in our hearts and in our lives. So we're going to go verse by verse starting in verse 13. Here we go. Verse 13 begins with this. He says, "And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them." All right. If you are a reader of the gospels, the the this story starts as very ordinary. It doesn't nothing strikes you as you know, out of the ordinary this story. And here's what I mean. There's no no miracles. There's no demons. There's no uh, healings happening in this story. You just got kids and parents and disciples and Jesus, okay? And you find out that these parents are just bringing their kids to Jesus. So it starts ordinary. And I want you to think about that phrase, parents bringing their kids to Jesus. How awesome is that? You think of anything better that those parents could have been doing that day and bringing their kids to Jesus, to, that their kids will be blessed by Jesus, touched by Jesus. Okay. Now, listen. The kids are not mentioned to have any specific needs in this passage. They're not bringing their kids to Jesus for healing or bringing their kids to Jesus for deliverance from some demonic oppression. They're bringing their kids to Jesus because they desire Jesus' blessing on their children. They desire Jesus to pray for their kids. These are parents that want their kids to know God, to walk with God. And so they bring their kids to Jesus so that He'll pray for them and bless them. Okay, the blessing here, we're going to move through this pretty fast. This doesn't mean, blessing is not a reference to salvation in this passage. So when they bring their kids for a blessing from Jesus, that, that, that whole exchange where Jesus lays His hand and prays for them, that doesn't mean that those kids are saved. Okay, This idea of blessing is rooted in the Old Testament. If you've ever read the book of Genesis, at the very end, you know that Jacob, who would be renamed Israel, at the very end of the book, he lays his hands on his 12 sons and he what? He blesses them. Right before he dies, he blesses his children. So this is an idea that's rooted in the Old Testament Scriptures, this blessing. Now, in first century Judaism, it's really common for parents to bring their kids to rabbis so that rabbis will bless them, especially traveling rabbis. And that's exactly what happens in this story, that these parents bring their kids to Jesus, the rabbi. And that's important. Because these par- it is highly unlikely that these parents know everything about Jesus. It's highly unlikely that they're bringing their kids to Jesus with a full awareness that He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is God the Son. Okay? Okay? More than likely, these parents are bringing their kids to Jesus because Jesus has gained a reputation for Himself. He is the teacher. He is a man of God. He is recognized as a man of God in this community. And so what do they do? They want to bring their kids to the man of God so that this man of God would bless them. And this is exactly what happens in the story. Numbers chapter 6 gives us a, a really vivid description of something like this would have happened in that exchange. When the kids were brought and they were the, the blessing was sought, something like this would have happened. In numbers six, verses twenty-two through twenty-seven, we read of a blessing pronounced over the people of God. Listen to this. It says, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And so think about this. Up to this point, people had blessed in the name of God and they said, the Lord bless you and keep you. But they brought their kids to Jesus. And they didn't know this, but they didn't stand in front of an ordinary rabbi. They're standing in front of God in the flesh. And so you think about that. When they ask for blessing from Jesus, Jesus, Jesus says, I bless you. He doesn't say the Lord bless you. This is who they're bringing their kids to. So the parents are bringing their kids to Jesus. And there's a verb in verse 13. I want you to think about it. The verb, when it says that they brought their kids to Jesus, it's in the present tense continuous. And I know that you've heard that a couple of times in Mark already. But what that means is that children kept coming to Jesus. So I want you to picture on this day that there is a long line of kids. And one after the other, parents bringing their kids to Jesus, and He's blessing them. And they're bringing their kids to Jesus, and He's blessing them. Okay? Verse 13, there's a word used for children in verse 13, and it means it's a generic word okay, for a small child. But, listen to this, Luke also records this story. Y'all know how that happens, right? Like, one story can show up in Mark and Luke, and you get additional details in Luke that you don't get in Mark. When Luke records this story, he uses the word for infants. Okay, And what that means is that you have a lot of kids from a variety of ages being brought to Jesus, and some of these children are infants being brought to Jesus. So I want you to picture in your mind that there is this long line of parents with kids of a variety of ages. There's little little infants there, and there's older small children there, and they're all just coming to Jesus. They're being brought to Jesus for the blessing. This is the setting of the story. Okay, And before we move forward... I just want to sit down in this idea that these parents brought their kids to Jesus. And I feel like it would be almost irresponsible for me to move past that without encouraging us. It is a good thing for us to bring our children to Jesus. And I want to encourage you to do this. We cannot, like they did in this story, in a physical sense, walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, please lay your hand on my children. Please bless my kids. We can't do that. But we can bring our kids to Jesus by sharing the gospel with our children. This has to happen. This is our responsibility to do that. We are to bring our kids to Christ. I want you to listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, We must never allow ourselves to suppose that little children's souls may be safely left alone. He says, Their trajectory of life depends exceedingly on what they see and here during their first seven years. So this is what he says. And so I want to remind us, parents in this room, it is our responsibility to to saturate the minds of our children with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To soak the minds of your kids with the Gospel of Jesus. This is our job before God. And I pray that every single kid in this church will grow up and say, and say, my parent, what my parents were infatuated with Jesus Christ and His Gospel. They loved Jesus Christ and His Gospel. They never stopped talking about Jesus Christ and His Gospel. They had another layer of affections when it came to Jesus. It was like another gear in their soul that when they started talking about Jesus, they didn't talk about Jesus like anything else in their life. They loved Jesus. They were infatuated with Jesus and His Gospel. So I pray that every kid among us has that testimony when they're 15, 20, 25 that they would be brought up in homes that are lovers of Jesus and His Gospel. So it's our responsibility to do this. Saturate their mind. And it's our responsibility, think about this, to go to Jesus on behalf of our children and ask for the blessing of Jesus. Okay? That means, parents, that it is our job to relentlessly call out to God and say, Lord Jesus, save my kid. Lord Jesus, save my son. Save my daughter. This is our responsibility before God. It is very true, especially in this culture. It is very, 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 very true that we need to be very careful about leading our children into false conversions. And the way that this is typically done is through sharing minimalistic Gospels, okay, little candy cane Gospels with distorted versions of faith. We need to be very Very careful of that. That's right, and that's true. And I don't want to back off of that at all. But it's also our job as parents to encourage our children to trust in Jesus. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, Christians who do not use every scriptural means to bring children to Christ are committing a great sin. And here's what I want to encourage you with. Don't be so scared of false conversions that you become a passive evangelist in the life of your children. It is your job to plead. It is your job to encourage your kids to put their trust in Jesus. So may we do this well as a church. And my question for you is this, before we leave, have you done this? Have you taught your kids the gospel? Is this going on in your home? Now we as a church, we can equip you to do these things, but we cannot do this for you. Okay, this is not the way that God has set this up. Listen to Deuteronomy six. This lays out our responsibility as parents to get the word of God into our kids. Deuteronomy six seven says this. You parents shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You see that? That's our job as parents. That's not the church's job. That's not anyone else's job. We need to feel the weight of that. And we need, to, we need to go after this. Like we go after a few things on this planet to get the Word of God and the Gospel into our kids. Okay. In our passage, so far, we have seen an example of wise parents that bring their kids to Jesus. And now we're about to walk into a second example because we're about to see an example of foolish disciples. Verse 13 continues with this phrase. Those parents brought, and then it says, and the disciples rebuked them. Man, what's going on? What's going on in this story? Like kids are just trying to get to Jesus. Parents are trying to get their kids to Jesus. And the disciples turn around and rebuke the parents. I want you to think about that. That is a harsh word in the gospel. That's the same word that's used when Jesus cast out a demon and he rebukes them. And so you need to have in your mind, they turn around and they light these parents up. They light into them. They let them have it. They rebuke them. Okay? And the them there, let's just camp out here for a second. The them there is a masculine pronoun. And so what that means is they rebuke the fathers of these children. Masculine pronoun. That's who they rebuke. The fathers of the children. And so, fathers in this room, I just want this to be a reminder to us. This is just a reminder. That at the end of the day, it is not Mama's job to bring your children to Jesus. It's your job. You are to be the spiritual leader in your family. You're to be, be the spiritual leader for your children. Listen to Ephesians six, verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a commandment that lands on you, not Mama. Okay. And I say ultimately lands on you because Mama's you're not you're not Free from this. Deuteronomy 6, we've already covered this. Your job is to be a diligent helper in this mission. You are to diligently teach your kids the Word of God. But at the end of the day, dads, you bear a responsibility before God to ensure that this happens in your home and for your children. You're the leader. And this is a great privilege. And I just want to encourage you, do not drop the ball on this. I mean, at the end of your life, you can fail in a hundred things, but don't fail in this. This is eternal. This is life and death that we're talking about with our children. So may you fail at a thousand things before you fail at this. And I'll just say this. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that you will ever do in your job that's anywhere close to being important as you training your children in the Lord. Nothing. So we need to go after this with zeal. With everything that we have, we need to go after this, training our children. So back in this passage... Remember, they turn and they rebuke the fathers of these children. Why did they do that? And let's just talk about what they... They had a right thought and a wrong thought. And the right thought was this. Jesus is very important. Jesus is a busy man. We need to guard Jesus' time. That's right. All day long, that's right. Jesus is very important. Jesus is very busy. And Jesus doesn't need to be involved with frivolous activities. But here's the wrong thought, that they concluded, their conclusion was that, that children are too insignificant to be, to be wasting Jesus' time. And so they turned and they lied into these parents, because these parents were infringing on what they thought as important time with the Savior. So they lit them up. Now why did they do this? The Old Testament, when these men were Jews, y'all, y'all, remember, y'all remember that, right? These twelve apostles, they were Jewish men. Why in the world would they have done that? Why in the world would they have made that mistake of, 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 a, of this a sinful, low view of children? And, and, and the Old Testament, it gives them no help here because the Old Testament highly values children. Listen to Psalm 127, verse 3. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So the Old Testament would have smoked them on this. It didn't give them any license to do what they did. But here's what happened. In the first century, Judaism began to be Hellenized. Have you ever heard that phrase? And what that means is that Roman and Greek influence began to infiltrate Jewish culture. Okay? And Romans and Greeks didn't share the same mentality towards children as Hebrews. They did not highly value children. They were not considered a reward. They were not considered a blessing. And so, what's happening to these disciples is they turn and they rebuke this parent, these parents, because these disciples are under this worldly—they're being influenced by this worldly pagan mindset that devalues children. And you're about to see Jesus flip that worldview right upside down. Okay, this is why they did what they did because they're operating in a worldly mindset. They saw Jesus as too busy for children, and this is a huge mistake. Huge mistake. They're about to misrepresent Jesus. Their whole job of why they're on the planet is to accurately represent Jesus, but they're about to misrepresent Jesus. And for this reason, we read the following in verse 14. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. I just want that to sink in. Yes, the Word of God really teaches that Jesus Christ was indignant. In fact, this is the only time in the Gospels where he's pictured in, with this Greek word as indignant. Now, does that mean in your mind? Does that mean kind of mad or real mad? Indignant in my mind means really mad. Jesus is very angry. Okay, and so some of us operate under the false assumption that all all anger all the time is sinful. That is not true. It's just flat out not true. Jesus is without sin, and Jesus is indignant. Okay? And so I just want to come against that right now. Anger does not equal sin. Jesus is angry here. Think about this. And in fact, if you're never angry, I just want to push on you for a second. If you're never angry, and I mean ever, okay, I just want to tell you, I want to wake you up that there are things on this planet that you should be angry about. There are things in this world that should cause anger to rise up in your heart. And if they don't, it doesn't mean that you're just this patient, so gentle person. It means that you don't care enough. It means that you don't have the heart of Jesus, that you're not Christ-like over the injustices in the world. Now let me qualify that because to be, to be brutally honest with you, the, the majority of references to anger in the New Testament are about sinful anger. And so we want to fall up under that warning that this is not sinful anger rising up in Jesus. And we know that because it's not selfish. Jesus is not mad for selfish reasons. He's angered about the injustice that's shown to these children. And so the anger of Jesus tells us a lot about the heart of Jesus. He's indignant because He loves children. He's full of compassion towards children. And you need to know know this about Jesus. That He is indignant when children are considered too insignificant to be brought to Him. It makes him indignant. Very, very angry. And we can broaden that principle out. I think we can broaden that principle out without doing any disservice to the Scriptures. Jesus is indignant when we think anyone is too insignificant to be brought to Jesus. Okay? It causes him anger in his bones. He doesn't like it. Very angry. Alright, I want you to try to see yourself in this story before we move forward because there's about to be an exchange between the disciples and Jesus. And I want you to see yourself here. I want you to see yourself in the disciples' position because they're about to be corrected and rebuked. So in order to help you see yourself there, ask yourself this question. Who do you devalue that Jesus highly values? And I want you to see yourself there and I want you to feel this push from Jesus they're about to misrepresent they already have misrepresented Jesus in doing what they've done. And remember, when you misrepresent Jesus, when you distort the nature of Jesus, you're distorting the nature of God himself. And for this reason, Jesus, he doesn't keep his indignation internal. It rises up in him and something's about to come out of his mouth. And you see this in verse 14 continues. And Jesus said to them, "Let the children come to me and do not hinder them." And I just, want to, I just want you to see this. He just repeated himself, positive and negative way, back to back, didn't even break thought. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. And I want to call this the double whammy. Okay? And he's like, what is that? Well, just think about it. Every kid that's old enough in the room knows what a double whammy is. It's when your parent tells you something twice without even breaking sentence. Put that down. Don't pick that up again. Get off that. Don't get back up there. And you know when the double whammy comes that you better be paying attention. okay? And so Jesus hits His disciples with a double whammy. He says, let the children come to Me and do not hinder them. And I want to remind you that the Word of God says that Jesus said that and He was full of indignation. Full of indignation. He was hot about this. okay? And I want you to think about it. If you if we were honest, you know, most of us got in a certain amount of trouble when we were little. Okay, and maybe we got trouble consistently, maybe not as consistently as we should have. But there most of us can identify there are a few times in our childhood where we got in trouble, where it was bad. We got not just a spanking, we got a big spanking. Okay? And so think about this. I, we, we, can, we can be assured that when the Son of God is standing in front of you with indignation and He hits you with a double whammy, this stuck in their brains. This would not be a lesson that they would forget. This would be something that they would look back on for the rest of their life when they got a big spanking from Jesus. you see that? He was mad about what they did. He was flipping their worldview. And He was going to make sure that this never happened again. And so, they got in big trouble, and Jesus does. Jesus lovingly and firmly, lovingly and firmly teaches them this lesson. And the lesson is clear. The lesson is that they are never to forget this for the rest of their life, that Jesus loves children. Children are not insignificant to Jesus, they're important to Jesus. Jesus is not too busy for children, He has time for children. He desires to be around children. This was the lesson. So I want to ask us this before we move forward. How is your heart, if you were to picture yourself in this story, how is your heart towards children? Do you share Jesus' love for kids? And I want you to think about this. Very practical. Children are people. They have, they're have real people, image bearers of God. And so when you see them, when you see children, do you greet them? Do you talk to them? Or do you talk straight over their head like they're not even on the planet? Do you greet them? Do you... Get down on their level and engage in dialogue with children. Are you like Jesus? Are you, do you think that your daily tasks are too important to break and to spend time with children? Do you share Jesus' view of children? And the reason I ask this is we, at this church, we're blessed by God. We have a lot of kids running around this church, right? Praise God for that. This is a reward. This is a blessing. And so our prayer ought to be, coming out, of, coming out of this story, a right response to the Word of God ought to be, Lord, help us to grow into Your likeness more and more in our love for children. Let us see our interaction with children as service, as a privilege to God. And we need to grow in this. We need to learn these lessons from Jesus because this is a big deal. When this is not done, Jesus is indignant. He's very angry. So let's respond rightly to this. Jesus loves children because they bear the image of God. All right? That's why murder is wrong. That's why abortion is wrong. That's why you doing wrong to your neighbor is wrong is because they're image bearers of God. The image of God is what gives value and dignity to human life across the board. No nothing attached to it. That's why that's the value and dignity of human life is wrapped up in the image of God. And children are image bearers, and for this reason Jesus loves children. They're important. They're valuable to them. But, it takes a step further than that. Children, in addition to being image bearers of God, they also reveal something about God's kingdom. So I want you to think about this. I'll I'll use husbands as an example. According to Ephesians chapter 5, not only is every husband an image bearer of God, But they also serve an additional purpose and they reveal something about this Christ church analogy. They stand in the place of Christ in this analogy between him and his church. And they reveal the way, they're supposed to reveal the way that Christ deals with his church. Do you see that? Twofold. They're image bearers and they serve an additional purpose. Children are the same way. They're image bearers and they show something about how we are to enter into the kingdom of God. So think about this. I want you to catch this. God set the universe up in such a way that when He desired to give an illustration about how the kingdom is entered, He desired to, to use a little infant, a little small child, to tell us something about His kingdom. This is the way He set it up. Children reveal something about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is about to tell us this in the very next verse. Verse 14 finishes with this phrase. Jesus says, For two such belongs the kingdom of God. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. So I want you to see the picture that day. Disciples rebuke the parents. Jesus rebukes disciples and He's he's looking at that same group of kids. Infants to older children. He says, to such belong the kingdom of God. Alright, I want to be very honest with you that there is a... Interpretations for that phrase are all over the map. And you might be surprised. This is like one of the most uh, referenced places in the New Testament for infant baptism. And you say, "What?" It doesn't say anything about baptism in that in that in that verse. And I say, "Yeah, I know. I can't believe it either. I don't know uh, half the half the stuff that gets imported out of this verse is is off the charts ridiculous." Okay. And so Mark never when he was talking about this this phrase in the scriptures, he says. This is a gold mine for eisegesis. That's what he said. And I thought that was sharp. And what eisegesis is is the opposite of exegesis. Exegesis is pulling out of the Scriptures what's there. Eisegesis is putting into the Scriptures what you want to be there. And he said that this text has been used in a lot of ways to manipulate. So, for this reason, we're going to take this phrase really slow. We're going to break it down. Take it really slow. For to such belong the kingdom of God. What does that mean? First thing I want to stick out in your mind. People that the kingdom belong to are saved. People that the kingdom belong to are saved. This is the language of salvation. Now, initially, that doesn't help us at all. In fact, it makes it a lot more cloudy because we're asking the question, okay, all right, Jesus is looking at a bunch of kids and He says, to such are saved. To such belong the kingdom. See how... Confusing that is. Now throw in the detail that Luke tells us we have infants in that crowd. And so what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that all kids, including infants, are automatically saved? They're automatically a part of the kingdom. Or is he saying all kids, including infants, of believers, are automatically saved according to that phrase? And here's the answer to that question, no. The answer to that question is no. Children are not automatically saved and children of believers are not automatically saved. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Children by nature are children of wrath, not children of the kingdom. You see that? The nature of children, they're not headed to the kingdom, they're headed to wrath. They need the gospel of Jesus shared with them. They need to be prayed for that God would save them. Do you see that? So this is not what the phrase means. So the next thing we want to focus in on is the word such. Jesus looks at this group, all these kids, and He doesn't say, to these belong the kingdom. He says, to such as these belong the kingdom. you see that? It's not literal. He's not talking about the kids right in front of Him. He says, to such. To kids like this, to such. This is the language of metaphor and analogy. And Jesus is saying that children reveal something. They're an illustration of, to show how the kingdom is entered. They're, they're an illustration to show something about salvation. Mark Dever has another quote on this passage. He says, This passage isn't so much about a three-year-old in the kingdom as much as it is about a 30-year-old's attitude to get into the kingdom. And I thought that was a good way to summarize that. And just in case you're still foggy on that, there's still some fog in your mind about that phrase, Jesus Christ Himself interprets verse 14 with verse 15. So let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. What did Jesus mean? Here's exactly what He meant. Verse 15 says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So according to Jesus, there's something about a child that's necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. And let's just hit this on the front end. It is not a child's purity. It is not their innocence. It is not the fact that they are sweet. Okay, There's a lot of that type language flying around in our culture. This is just not true. The Scriptures are clear on this. Psalm 51 tells us that children are born in sin. Romans chapter 5 tells us tells that children are born sinners in Adam. Children have Adam's sinful nature and ours, their parents, running through and dominating their hearts. Children are born in sin as sinners. So Jesus is not referencing a child's purity. This is not what He means. But there is something about a child that's necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. You ask every parent in this room, uh, you, ask any, you say uh, children are living illustrations of sin. You ask any parent, you say, is that true? And, and they they say, you know what? That's true. I, I, I experience that on a daily basis, that children are living illustrations of sin. So that's not what Jesus is referencing. But what is he referencing? And I want you to think about this. There is a global objective experience that every kid on the planet enters into the moment they're born. And I want to call it helpless dependence. God set things up in such a way that when someone's born, they're not born as a 30-year-old self self-sustaining, independent being. They're born as an infant, a little baby, and they go through this long process to maturity. And so every single planet, no matter where you're from, no matter what language you speak, rich, poor, economic status, doesn't matter. Every single one are helpless and dependent. And so Jesus grounds this statement. This is what He's pointing us to, not in children's purity, but in their weakness and their neediness and their dependence on another. So in this way, children are powerful, powerful illustrations of the kingdom of God, of salvation by grace. Powerful illustrations. Think about it. Kids, I mean, parents, you think about this. Kids bring nothing to the dinner table. They add nothing to the bank account. They contribute nothing. Small children contribute nothing. They are completely dependent on another for survival. It's just the way that it's set up. And so this tells us something about the kingdom of God. His point is clear. Jesus' point is clear. To enter the kingdom, you must come as one who is weak, needy, dependent, helpless before God. This is what He's teaching us. I want to take it one step further. children in this culture, uh, they had no legal standing, no rights in this Roman society. None. And so if a child received anything in this culture that Jesus is speaking to, they, they didn't receive it on the basis of right. They received it as a gift. And so if you take that same parallel, the kingdom of God is never received on the basis of right or merit. The kingdom of God is only received as an undeserved gift from God. This is the parallels that Jesus has drawn with this phrase. The kingdom of God only comes as gift, not as right. It is grace not works. In this way, children are illustrations of how we are to be saved. We're supposed to go to God not on the basis of rights or merit, but on the basis of grace, on the basis of a gift. This is what he's, These are the only people that come into the kingdom of God. So do you see this? Do you see what this means? Do you see the implications of this for your life and for every human being on the planet? Jesus just demanded, demanded, that the way that we come to God, the way that we enter in is like a helpless infant crying out to be fed. God, save me. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. I'm helpless before you. This is the way that Jesus says is the door into the kingdom of God. This is the only way in. And this is an assault on us. It's an assault on our pride. It's an assault on our self-righteousness. It's an assault on our arrogance. It's an assault on intellectualism that we have to bow down and we have to acknowledge our weakness and our dependence and we have to humble ourselves before God before we even enter the door of the kingdom. You see that? It's a push against self-righteousness. Which is why this story Mark chapter 10, do you know what it's immediately followed by? It's followed by a story called The Rich Young Ruler. And that man is a living example of what it looks like to refuse to come to Christ like a child. He had a relentless desire to achieve and to merit His own salvation. And He refused to humble Himself as a needy, weak, helpless infant before Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus is showing us here. That you must come. You must humble yourself. Every single person that hears my voice right now, you are powerless to save yourself. Now, you might have deceived yourself, Okay? You might not feel that way, but you know what? At the end of the day, that doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, we know from the Word of God that you are powerless to save yourself. You have amassed a record of sin and guilt before God the judge. Romans chapter 3 teaches us that by works of the law, no human being will be right before God, will be justified before God. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. And so we're all weak and powerless to be saved. All we bring to the table, okay? we're worse than than infants. Infants bring nothing to the table, but all we bring to the table is sin and guilt and weakness and judgment and condemnation. And so if we want to go that route, if we want to go the works path before God, just be warned by that. You will stand before God in the wickedness of your sin because that's all you have to bring. You have been stained by your sin. You can't wash it away. This is is what Jesus would have us to think about. And so, what this means for us is that every single one of us must renounce self righteousness if we were to ever come to Christ. We must repent of dead works and have faith toward God. We must repent of self righteousness. And what this means is that in our sinfulness, when we don't think rightly about ourselves, we think that we're strong and independent. And what Jesus is calling us to do is repent. No, you have to see yourself as you truly are. You are weak and dependent. And so with these words, Jesus demands that we bow the knee to Him, that we humble ourselves to see ourselves as we truly are. And any reluctance to do this, any reluctance in us to do this, it reveals self-righteous pride. It reveals our desire to atone for our own sins, to merit our own salvation. And this is disgusting before God. It reveals our pride. So don't misunderstand this. When we, when we have this child, humble, weak, dependent analogy of entering the kingdom, don't misunderstand this. Jesus is not demanding you to become something that you are not, He's not. Jesus is demanding that you see yourself as you truly are. Because at the end of the day, whether you like it or not, you are weak. You are dependent on God. You think you have strength, but you have none before God. And so Jesus demands that you see yourself as you truly are, a helpless infant before God with no claim, no merit on eternal life. This is the only way into the kingdom. is a grace gift from God. So unless you see yourself as you truly are, you will never enter the kingdom of God. How scary is that? Unless you see yourself as you truly are, you will never enter The kingdom of God. And so, let's just be real for a second. This story is about kids and babies, but this story is not soft. Do you understand that? Unless you repent, unless you humble yourself, you will suffer forever outside of Jesus' kingdom. Do you understand that? Forever outside of Jesus' kingdom. This is the clear teaching of the Scriptures. So if you're here this morning and you know that you're not a Christian, or you have this passing thought in your back of your mind that maybe you're not, I want to plead with you that you would come to Christ like a helpless baby, that you would refuse to lie to yourself any longer. You are helpless before God. You can't stand before God in your works. You need grace from God. You need forgiveness. You need to repent before God of trying to save yourself. And the good news is that every person who does this who comes to Christ like a child, every single one, Jesus receives them into His kingdom. Every single one. Okay, some of you are thinking, I just don't know how to do that. I don't know how to come to Christ like a kid and be saved. I want to give you the words. This is a 300-year-old hymn. And this is how to come to Christ like a little baby and to be saved. I want to read them to you. 300 years old. It says, Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to the cross I cling. And then it says, Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I come to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's how you get down low and be honest with yourself and you come to Jesus. This is the only way into the kingdom of God. And I just want to say this, and I mean this with all of my heart. If you're here and you're not saved, my prayer for you, our prayer for you, is that you would have no rest on this earth until you know that you have passed from death to life, until you know that you've been saved. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would disturb you, that you would have trouble even, even having one more ungodly, worldly conversation, until you know that you're saved. I pray that the Holy Spirit will wake you up at night until you know that you're saved, that you would be disturbed about your soul before God. So may you never rest until you know that you have passed from death to life. And every single person who humbles himself like a child and comes to Christ will enter God's kingdom. Verse 16 finishes up our passage. It says this, And He took them in His arms and blessed them, laying His hands on them. Do you see, the story started, do you see that Jesus did more than what the parents expected Him to do? These parents are coming to Jesus and they desired that Jesus would lay his hands on them and that he would pray for them. And then they get there and what does Jesus do? Jesus takes every one of them up in his hands like a big bear hug and just holds them. He takes them up in his arms and he blesses them. Now what's that a picture of? That's a picture of the grace of God that's been shown to us. Do you see that? This is glorious, amazing grace that every single one, what happens to everyone that humbles themselves and comes to Jesus like a child? What happens? Here's what happens, that Jesus Christ takes them up in His arms and He blesses them. He holds them to Himself. This is how close Christ has brought us to Him. Do you see that? This is the glorious grace of God that's been shown us. John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Every single one of us have been made children of God. We were children of wrath, and Jesus made us children of God. This is the glorious grace of Jesus. And so as we close, I just want to talk to my brothers and sisters in Christ. See you almost every week, and I love you very much. And as we think about how this this passage is supposed to hit us, what are we supposed to think about? And I just want us all to leave today freshly reminded that you are utterly dependent before God. Utterly dependent before God. Y'all know that we grow as a Christian, right? We're supposed to grow in Christ. Grow in grace. That we start as babies. We're supposed to grow up into salvation. That's true, right? But that never ever means... That we grow into a state to where we don't need grace from God. We always stay in this helpless, dependent state before God. We come in like babies before God, and we stay this way. We need grace from God. We don't come in by works. I mean, by grace, and then get on works. We always stand stand in grace before God. We need this. We need this reminder. So Jesus in this passage is rebuking self sufficiency. He's rebuking arrogance in us. And so let us, let us respond. We need to see ourselves as helpless infants before God. And this never changes. And if you're saying, I don't know how to do that. So my encouragement to you is that you would get low and that you would stay low before God. That's the only proper place for you. Get low and stay low before God. And maybe you say, I don't know how to do that. I want to share words with you from a 300-year-old hymn. This is how you do that. This is how you get low and you stay low before God. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to the cross I cling Naked, come to thee for dress Helpless, look to thee for grace Foul, I to the fountain fly Wash me, Savior, or I die You never move past that. You never, ever move past the gospel. You never move past your need for grace from God. We are little children, helpless infants before our Father in heaven. And so may the Holy Spirit drive this into your soul. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to come with praise to You, God, that You have saved us. That You have made us Your own own children. And God, we just do. We, we praise You, Lord, for that. We want to be moved by it. We want to be moved by the truth that we were once children of wrath and now we've become Your own children. God, we praise You for it. God, we pray that You'd make us a humble people and that You would drive out pride and arrogance in us, Lord, and self-dependency, God. We pray that You would make us dependent on Your grace and on Your mercy. Pray You'd drive out any pride in us, Lord, and I- I just want to pray, God, for the children that you've given us all around this church. I just want to pray, Lord, that you, would, that you would save them. God, I pray that you would. Lord, I pray, God, that you would exalt yourself all over this church as the Savior of these children. That you would exalt yourself in their life as the Savior. God, we pray that from even very young, Lord, that you would show them their sinfulness. God, there's so many examples, Lord, of children growing up in religion and they don't see themselves as sinful before you, God. And we just pray, God, that you, would, that you would help us, Lord, that you would help us to drive this into their minds and to their hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. Show them their sin and then show them, Lord, your glorious grace. We pray, God, that you would enthrall our children with the gospel of, of your grace, Lord. God, we pray that you would save them. We pray, God, that you would let light shine out of darkness, God, and that you would open their eyes, that you would open their hearts, Lord, and that you would save them, that you would make them new. They've been born one time, and we ask you, God, for the new birth, for the second birth, this birth of the Spirit, the birth from heaven. And, Lord, we just pray, God, that you would raise up children all over this church that know you, that love you, that walk with you on this planet. And that You would send them out into Your mission, Lord, even to speak with the enemy in the gates. God, that You would make them exceedingly fruitful in Your kingdom. This is our prayer, Lord Jesus, in Your name. Amen.